you would grab a Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Hope it's okay that I am sitting. I have not uh, torn my Achilles. I have not hurt myself running. I haven't done anything like that. I just felt like sitting down, so hope that's all right. Uh, we do have some things that uh, we're going to cover this morning uh, in rather rapid fashion. This is our Q&A morning. Uh, which we try to do the second Sunday of each month in this time slot. And uh, as you're turning to Matthew 23, I want to tell you a little bit about, um, well, what's going to happen over the next couple of months in this time. Uh, So uh, our plan is to be leaving in mid-June. And so when I looked at the Q&A list that I have, There are so many questions that you guys have asked that I thought, if I don't answer these questions by mid-June, I don't know what's going to happen to all these questions. And uh, so I I started looking, and I thought, you know, if I am going to get through all of these questions between now and mid-June, we've got roughly four today and then three more um, second Sunday sessions, uh, I better get busy. And so what that's going to mean is we're going to move a little bit faster, and sometimes... Uh, in, in the Q&A, I like to take some time and kind of leisurely address some things and kind of work through different principles and things that fall into why we would answer a question in a certain way. I'm not going to be able to do that as much. So you may think, wow, he didn't really cover a lot there. It looks like he overlooked something. If you have a question that comes from my response to your question or something like that, uh, we can talk more about it. But uh, that's why I'm doing that. For those who are visiting or those who are joining us online, uh, the Q&A time is where I answer questions that have been previously submitted to me, and uh, I try to put together an answer for how the Bible addresses that topic or how I would answer it if it's a question that requires my judgment, and uh, then present those. Uh, but it is not uh, kind of a back-and-forth type of Q&A. So uh, let's tackle a few of these this morning. First of all, uh, why do some churches believe that tithing still applies? What does the New Testament teach about giving? Uh, beyond the idea of giving cheerfully and with forethought. That's the question here. So it's a question that talks first about tithing and then second about uh, giving as a subset of tithing. So tithing is the idea of giving 10% of our income as a contribution to, with regard to God in some way. Uh, so tithing has a long history. It actually precedes the law of Moses. This is uh, Genesis 14:20. Abram gave him, the him here is Melchizedek, who is priest of the Most High God that he met after the battles uh, to rescue his, his nephew Lot. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this is uh, in Abraham's time, long before Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai and the Jewish people are there. This is just Abram giving a tenth of everything. A little later in Genesis 28, uh, this is Jacob swearing of all that you give me, promising to God, I will give a full tenth to you. So you see, it, it seems like, well, kind of a strange idea that they would arbitrarily say, here's 10% of whatever I have. But that seems to be what happens even before it's prescribed In the law of Moses. And then in the law of Moses, there is this expectation that whatever the Jewish people bring in, they're going to take a tenth of it and give it back specifically to help sustain the Levites. Uh, This is Numbers 18 21. To the Levites, this is God speaking, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord. I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. So they're presenting it as a contribution to God. And he says, but I'm giving it to the Levites to sustain them. So that process of sharing and then having a tribe that then receives the benefits of that as they serve on behalf of the people uh, is a part of the old law. Now, the, the law of Moses has a tie that doesn't seem to be money. 
It seems to always be something to do with food, whether that's a tenth of the crops or a tenth of livestock, whatever it is, it's something that's going to sustain the Levites. So uh, we're, we're kind of talking in times where money was not what we think of money as now, uh, but usually that tenth is a tenth of crops and animals. Now, uh, there are different uses for that money besides just the Levites. Sometimes that would be used for preparation for some of the feast days. Sometimes it would be used for some of the uh, helping the poor. And it's not always clear, is that a different tithe or is that taking from the main tithe? But it's led some scholars to believe that as much as 20% of an Israelite's gain would be returned. So that's the idea of the Old Testament. It's not just strictly, oh, I've given 10% and that's it. It's instead, that's sort of a baseline for what they're giving. All right, so the question is, uh, why do some churches believe that tithing still applies? So uh, there are congregations, and, and we're not one of them. If you're familiar at all with our teaching on giving, uh, we don't say give 10%. Usually we say give what's in your heart or give according to your ability or give as you've been prospered or sometimes give as you've purposed. All of those are biblical phrases from the New Testament. So uh, we usually don't work with a tithing uh, mentality, and the reason for that is that's Law of Moses stuff, and we're Christians that follow the New Testament. So Uh, There's a difference there. But the question is, why do some churches believe tithing still applies, and why do they teach that? What's their rationale? So there are a few arguments that they make. First one is they teach that tithing precedes the law of Moses. So uh, when you have Melchizedek and Jacob that we already talked about, they were before the law of Moses. So you can't just say that tithing, according to their argument, is a law of Moses issue. And in some ways, this is like the Sabbath. When people argue that we ought to keep the Sabbath today, they use the same argument. They say that precedes the law of Moses. The Sabbath is there in the creation. So uh, the law just sort of ratifies what was already there. And then in, in Christ's law or Christ's covenant, there's no elimination of that. So we should continue to observe it. But that's at least part of it. So Abraham, Jacob, give a tithe. Moses commands a tithe. And here in Matthew 23, they would argue that Jesus endorses the tithe. Look in Matthew 23 and verse 23 with me. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So if you look carefully at that text, of course, he is, he is arguing you have focused too much on tithing, mint and dill and cumin. Remember, we talked about it's food more than money, but you've tithed down to the very smallest herbs And he says, but you've neglected other things. But then he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, so you ought to have tithe. You ought to have paid attention to the weightier matters of the law. Both of those things are put in the category of ought. You should have done these things, and you shouldn't have neglected the others. Both of these things are expectations of God. So they would argue that Jesus endorses tithing, and certainly he does tell the Pharisees you should be tithing also. The question is, is that something that he is saying for his disciples, or is that just a correction of the Pharisees? I view this text a lot like uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus says, uh, if you are bringing your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. That idea, he's talking about leading an animal to be sacrificed. And he says, you leave the animal and go be reconciled to your brother. But no one, no Christian, takes Matthew 5 and says, we ought to have animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices are done away. We have the perfect sacrifice. We don't need that. So 
The idea that Jesus might mention an old law prescription and say you ought to keep the old law to people who are keeping the old law doesn't necessarily mean he's talking to his disciples. So I don't take this passage that way, but that is the argument. When you ask why do some churches believe tithing still applies, they might turn here. Uh, so the, uh, that's the basic argument is this is something that happened in the old law, and it's something that was before the old law, during the old law, and they would argue now after the old law in Jesus. So uh, the other uh, part of this is there, there's a passage in Malachi that talks about uh, tithing and how God says, you're robbing me by withholding your tithes. And so sometimes people would take that passage and sort of transfer it over to the New Testament era and say, we're robbing God by not giving him uh, the full tenth. So my answer to that argument is essentially this. Christians don't keep the law of Moses. And you can, you know, we can argue that extensively. I'm not going to do that for time's sake. I would just say that Paul makes the argument that Christians don't keep the law of Moses in Romans. He makes it in Galatians. The Hebrew writer makes it in Hebrews. Uh, It's a very clear distinction in the New Testament mind, the mind of the New Testament authors, that we don't keep the law of Moses. So if that's the case, and tithing is primarily something done for the Levites to support a system uh, under the Levites, that's not something we do today. Uh, Usually when you talk to people about this and you kind of get down into the nitty-gritty, someone will bring up, that there are ceremonial parts of the law of Moses and moral parts. And they will say there are two kind of different ways to take the law of Moses. And the ceremonial parts, that's the priests and the sacrifices and all those things. Those are done away with, but the moral parts continue. I kind of of push back on the ceremonial moral distinction for a couple of reasons. The first one is it's nowhere in Scripture that those two things are distinguished. The other is, I've just noticed that depending on who you talk to, some people put some things in the ceremonial bucket and other things in the moral bucket, depending on what you want to do. So people who keep a Sabbath today, for example, the Seventh-day Adventists, they would say, no, that's not part of the ceremonial law, that's part of the moral law. And people who are going to argue tithing, they would say, no, that's part of the moral law, because they want it to continue. It just seems like Uh, we become selective about which part goes in which bucket when we start saying some things from the law we keep and some we don't. I don't see that distinction in the New Testament. So uh, I kind of push back on that. So my other response is to say, not only does the New Testament say we don't keep the law of Moses, my other response is that Christians are never told to tithe and they're never shown what tithing is. We have no examples in the New Testament of people tithing. We have a lot of examples of people giving. Most of the time, that giving is far more than a tithe, far more than 10% of whatever we bring in. So uh, with that in mind, I want to quickly answer the second question. What does the New Testament teach about giving beyond the idea of giving cheerfully and with forethought? I'll just give you a few uh, ideas here. Uh, giving, first, giving is a grace instead of an obligation. We're going to talk about this more in our daily studies when we get to that, this part in 2 Corinthians. Uh, but uh, he says 2 Corinthians 8.4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That instead of having to do something, they were excited, they were begging us if we could please be a part of this great gift we could give to other people. It's a favor that I get to help someone and give to someone. So instead of having the obligation mindset, having the excitement and the begging I want to help mindset, uh, giving is a way of sharing burdens. Uh, This is 2 Corinthians 8.14. When Paul talks about this, he says, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Uh, The the passage he quotes there is the passage about uh, he who gathered much had no uh, 
did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack, uh, which is a, a manna passage. Everybody having what they needed. And he says, in the same way, when you share burdens and you give when you're in abundance and supply their need, then their abundance can supply your need, and that everybody always has what they need. And that's God's goal. So giving is a way we share burdens, and when we have more than what we need, we, we share. Uh, giving can join us in work. Uh, Paul says, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So when we give, there is a partnership or a fellowship that we work together with someone. We support a lot of preachers in this congregation. We send money to them. We give to be able to support that work. And what we are doing then is we are sharing in the work that they do in preaching the gospel where they are. Uh, And the last is just that there are no minimums and no maximums. I'm going to stick to that. The New Testament teaches us about uh, the widow who gives two mites. The New Testament teaches us about Barnabas who sells land and gives it to the apostles to distribute to the needy in Jerusalem. Uh, The Macedonians give out of their poverty. You just don't have any, this is how much, this is how little. And I've heard men talk about this and then say, but you know, 10% is a pretty good guide. I'm going to go with this. There are no minimums and no maximums. And I trust that we have the ability to know our own hearts, know our own finances, and give out of something that we believe is appropriate. So I don't think we can make rules about any of that. I really push back on the idea that we need to make rules for people about how to give. I think giving is always taught as an expression of the heart. And when our hearts say, I want to give and share, this is how it's done, not with minimums or maximums. All right, uh, so that's tied in question. Uh, second question I want to cover uh, is in James chapter 5. Let's go ahead and turn over to James 5. And the question is about the sickness and the anointing with oil in the name of the Lord in James 5. <clears throat> I've gotten this question a couple of times. Uh, back uh, oh, a year and a half ago or so when uh, we had our workshop on prayer, this was one of our topics, and out of the uh, discussion there, I got some more questions. I've gotten one of these recently. Uh, So I thought I would address it this morning. The question is, is the sickness in James 5, 14 and 15 physical or spiritual? And then as sort of a secondary question, why do we not call the elders and their oil today? All right, so let's just read here beginning in verse 13, James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. All right, so you have sickness in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? And then in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. But then in verse 16, he talks about confess your trespasses, pray for one another that you may be healed. All right, so the question is, is that sickness, is it physical or is it spiritual? Now, I will say that the sickness that's described in verse 14 and 15, I believe to be physical. Let me tell you why. First, verse 13 says, is anyone suffering, which I would believe to be primarily physical, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? So I think we're talking about different physical states that then James says, you need to take those physical states, how you're feeling, and do something spiritual with them. So if you're feeling like you're suffering, then you need to pray. If you're feeling like you're cheerful, you need to have the spiritual outlet of singing psalms. If you're feeling physically sick, you need to reach out to spiritual people and have them pray with you. So I think that 
the primary situation Paul, uh, Paul, James has in mind here is the idea of someone who is physically sick. But I will say, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, in verse 16, I think this, the idea is spiritual. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So that healing, when we confess sins and we pray, uh, I see to be primarily spiritual. Now, it could be, some have argued that what James is saying is physical sickness may be caused by spiritual sickness. But I, I don't take that view. I take the view that uh, he ch- sort of changes the way he's thinking about this in verse 16. All right, so what's the point? The point is, when you are physically sick, you need to reach out to men who are spiritually mature. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So if we're sick, we call the elders, men of spiritual maturity, men of connection to God. They are the men who are the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In verse 16, righteous men in this text are elders. So you call on them so that they can pray over you. There is a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about that phrase in verse 14, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil is used a lot of different ways in the New Testament era. Uh, oil is a medicine, and sometimes, like in Mark six thirteen, if you're taking notes, uh, the apostles are anointing many with oil who were sick and healing them. And so some people read Mark six thirteen and they say, oh, that looks like spiritual gifts, so maybe the elders here have spiritual gifts or some kind of power, uh, some kind of connection to God. But oil was also a daily cosmetic, like when you would prepare yourself for the day, There was oil that might be involved in getting yourself ready. So uh, when Jesus talks about um, uh, fasting, don't don't, uh, get rid of the ordinary ministrations of your body and face for the day as if people will look at you and say, boy, you look like a mess, and you can say, oh, I'm I'm fasting. That's why. He says, no, you, you do everything you would normally do. So what do we do with the oil? I really want to stress this. If you don't hear anything else I say about this, please hear this. The text says... That prayer is what heals a person. Look again at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. There it is. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the text does not ascribe any power to the oil. The text does not say that elders ministering oil somehow makes a difference in the healing of the person. The text says that what makes the difference is prayer. Prayer has the power, or more specifically, prayer connects us to God who has the power. That's the important part here. And I don't want us to get so sidetracked in thinking about the oil that we miss what we can all agree is the vital part, which is the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of the elders. So there's not some power in the oil. There's not some power in the elders. There is power in God accessed by prayer. So what could the oil be then? Well, it's possible that the oil represents the elders serving by sort of giving medicine to the person, you know, applying something to their wounds, which would kind of be like washing feet that Brent talked about, what was that, last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, where, you know, it's something that the elders would do to serve and uh, sort of get into the nitty-gritty of trying to help somebody get better. And so they're applying oil, or it may be, that uh, we're talking about in that sense of like getting ready for the day, that the elders are so confident that their prayers are going to be heard that they're saying, hey, you can just go ahead and get ready. 
things are going to get better, and I can help you with that. So the oil is about that. I'm not sure which of those. I, I just think those are possibilities. But I think everything about this text has to be couched in the context of prayer is what does the healing. So uh, the question, why, why do we not call the elders and their oil today? Um, I would say, well, I don't know why we don't. I mean, they're available. We should. I think that part of it is that we know that they don't have some special healing oil. You know, I think we know that. Uh, but I don't think that they had special healing oil in the first century because people then still sometimes got sick and obviously they died. It wasn't a failure of the elders or even a failure to call the elders. The question is, do we call? Look again at, uh, let's see, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? It says, let him call for the elders of the church. It puts the burden on the person who is sick to reach out. I've heard of people, I've had people tell me this in congregations, not in this congregation, so don't worry. But I've heard people say, you know, I was sick and nobody called me. As if we're supposed to guess. You know, well, I guess somebody is sick. I mean, if we don't know, how can we help? And so this text puts the burden on us to let other people know we have a need. Let him call for the elders of the church and give them opportunity to serve. So if we don't call the elders, maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, It may be that we don't really think that prayer is going to do that much good. You know, I've got my appointments. I'll go see my doctor. But I don't know. I mean, the elders, what can they do? And so we sort of look askance at the power prayer has or the power of spiritually minded people. Maybe it's that we don't feel close enough to the elders. Maybe it's that we don't feel close enough to our fellow Christians generally. And so we say, you know what, I'll just handle this on my own, or I'll just keep this in the family, or I'll just talk to my doctor. But whatever it is, we say, you know, I'm not going to share that. James is saying specifically, no, you need to share with other Christians. Maybe there's sin that we need to deal with, and we don't want to deal with people who are going to call us to account for our sin. I mean, that's in verse 16 there. It's right next to it. So it may be that sin is something that keeps us from doing that. But uh, I would encourage us to say, no, this is something we should do, not because the elders have special oil, but because the elders are spiritually minded people who have a connection to God, who want to pray with us and want to serve us. And that's something that God says is the pattern that we should follow. All right. Uh, Kind of connected to that is the next question, which is, uh, do we have to confess our sins to the church to be forgiven? I I thought I would put this together because the next verse talks about confession and forgiveness. So look at verse 16 with me. It says, uh, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So he says, if you believe in the power of prayer, you've called the elders, the the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and we're confident in that. He says, there is also an, an action that stems out of that confidence. If you are confident that God heals, therefore, verse 16, confess your sins and pray for one another so that you can be healed. Now, as I said earlier, I think we've moved from the idea of the healing being physical to now the healing being spiritual, although the two can be connected. Uh, In this text, it seems almost as if, uh, this is the way I picture it, almost as if, you know, I'm sick, I need help, I call the elders, hey, and while you're here, I've got some problems. Don't you have those conversations sometimes with your brothers and sisters? You know, I I didn't expect to to get into all of this with you, but, but while you're here, I have those conversations sometimes with people I'm very close to. Hey, this is what I've been working, has been working on me and what I'm dealing with right now. Can you pray with me? Can you help? And so in that way, it's natural 
for us to reach out to those who are already there. The elders coming to visit someone who is sick and the elders then seeking the, the help and the healing of, of spiritually minded people. I really think this is a vital passage. I really, really do. I really think it's a neglected idea. The idea of confessing our sins. I, I think it's vital mainly because I have experienced the other side where I have really struggled, refused to confess hidden my problems and concerns, uh, even from people who cared about me and who were in a position to help me and pray for me. Often we do this. We suffer in silence, and we put up a facade, and we think other people don't understand, or they would react poorly if they knew what I was going through. And so we say, you know what, I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to confess it. And in doing so, we push away the very people who would best be able to help us to deal with a problem. The people who would hold us accountable, the people who would strengthen us and pray for us, and keep them in the dark. We need this. We need to confess our trespasses to one another. We need to pray for one another because we need that healing. But that's not really the question, is it? The question is, do we have to confess our sins to the church to be forgiven? Well... There are two important parts to that question. Uh, One of them is, is James saying that we have to confess to others before we can be forgiven? So let's look again at verse 16 and see what it's actually saying. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So the goal is to have them help you and pray for you, but it's not a requirement. It's not written as a requirement. I see it as just natural. It's natural to have other people who are spiritually minded and you say, hey, can you help? I've got a problem. It's a little bigger than what I can handle. I would like for you you to pray with me and you to pray for me. But there's nothing in here that says that that confession is a condition of forgiveness. Confession to other people is not pictured here as a condition of forgiveness. And really, when you start thinking about it, that would create some problems. For one, if confession to other people is a condition of forgiveness, suddenly people are between us and God. I have to go to God through other people. You've got to come and hear my confession or else I can't be saved. And that's not the way the New Testament portrays forgiveness, nor is it what this passage teaches about forgiveness. I think it's a little more natural. This is Acts 8 and 22 and 24. This is when Simon the sorcerer makes his big gaffe and Peter rebukes him. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So Peter doesn't say, hey, repent and you need to tell everybody about it. That's not the condition. He says, repent and pray. This is between you and God. And Simon says, hey, can you help? That's the pattern in the New Testament. The pattern is, hey, can you help? I would like for you to pray. He knows Peter has a connection to God. He knows Peter is a righteous man, and the prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, hey, Peter, will you pray for me too? Sort of like asking Moses, will you intercede for us? Will you talk to God for us? We know you're tight with God. Can you use some of that for me? That's the natural extension of this. So to say, uh, well, I'm not ready for that yet. Oh, this is. Uh, So this is 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession in this text, in 1 John 1 9, is not confession to other people. Confession in this text is about admitting that we have sinned and not denying it. So it seems to me to be talking about how we express ourselves to God, being willing to say, I'm wrong, I shouldn't have done this, I want to be on God's page again. And so we confess and he will forgive us. 
So that's one part. Do we have to confess our sins to other people at all to be forgiven? The answer is no. But do we have to confess to the church as in to the whole group? And I think the question speaks to the fact that we have developed a practice of what we call going forward, okay, where you know, we'll give an invitation and we'll say, hey, come up to the front, and people will come up. It's sort of a variation on the old altar call from the uh, um, revival times in this country in the pioneer days. And so we still we maintain that, and that's a time where we let other people know about what's going on and what we need. So there's nothing like a, a going forward time in the New Testament. I don't see it anywhere. And what that means is it can't be a requirement, the idea of going forward in order to let people know. I also want to say we have developed a set of kind of, I would call them informal rules about how we deal with our problems and our sins. Uh, they, they go a little something like this. You may have heard something like this. Uh, a public sin needs to be publicly acknowledged. A private sin needs to be dealt with privately. I think those rules make some sense. I think it makes some sense to let Christians know about stuff that kind of brings shame on the group. But I think we have to own that those, those rules, those ideas are not biblical. They don't come from the Bible. That's just sort of a wisdom approach to some of that. So is it possible for me to at the same time say that confession is vitally important and essential for our spiritual lives while at the same time saying it's not a law? It's not something God says you have to confess in some way to other people to be forgiven. Because if it's possible to affirm both those things, that's where I am. I would say, yes, confess. Yes, James 5.16. At the same time, I would say, no, I can't make that a law and say that that's what God says about sin. I have three minutes. And I've got three more questions. All right. So uh, some of these, uh, let's go quickly to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Some of these are going to be a little bit of a repeat, uh, and so I, I don't mind uh, going over them rather quickly, but I just want to reaffirm some things uh, with regard to the Lord's Supper. These are three questions. Um, one is, do small groups violate 1 Corinthians 11? Uh, is it a problem when kids eat the leftover bread? And then thoughts on the Lord's Supper and live streaming. So um, I, I just wanted to revisit this a little bit because uh, we're reaching the point where um, we are beginning to be able to get back together again. And uh, it seems to me that there has been a lot of discussion over the last year plus about uh, the Lord's Supper and how we take the Lord's Supper because, you know, we've been, not been able to be together like normal because of the virus and all the, the precautions and the rules and the things that had to do with the virus. So uh, let's just remember 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. For in the first place, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So they are partaking of the Lord's Supper in some way that shamed the poor and divided them like it was a regular meal. And so his response to that in verse 33 uh, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So his idea is the Lord's Supper needs to be taken in a way that we're all taking together. And in this text, it's not just together in body. It's also together in spirit that we're all united in what we're doing. 
So uh, the first question was about small groups, which I, I have addressed this before, but I will just say that we've had a little, uh, it has a little different tone now because I think a lot of people have really struggled with what do I do with the Lord's Supper if I'm not able to be with another group of Christians? I'm at home. And whether that's because I'm sick or I'm really concerned about being sick or because there aren't assemblies available uh, because there were a lot of restrictions about assemblies for some time. Well, in that case, it seems to me that we have two unpleasant options, right? Uh, even if you're talking about somebody in a nursing home or somebody who's just physically sick, the two unpleasant options are either you can't take the Lord's Supper or you have to take it without being with all of your brethren. Well, neither one of those is great, right? And both of those have their own problems. It seems to me that people who are unable to attend the assembly still have an obligation and even a desire to remember the Lord. They're unable to attend. And so in that case, it seems to me that that desire is important. And I would not consider that a violation of 1 Corinthians 11. Instead, I would consider that an outgrowth of a respect for Jesus and a desire to follow Jesus. But what I think is important and what I want to say is that we have to acknowledge that those kinds of situations are exceptions. And and this is the rule. The rule is we take it together because that's God's will. It's God's will in 1 Corinthians 11. And I believe it's God's will for us as a congregation. So I think we have to say uh, pandemic stuff goes in that bucket. Yes, it has been an exceptional time. But as we move out of exceptions and back toward a, a sense of normalcy, I know it's not normal yet, but you know what I'm going for. We have to acknowledge this is the rule and this is the expectation and that this is what we should be seeking because it's obvious that God wants that for his people. So I think we need to say that about small groups. Um, Second question about leftover bread. I almost don't want to talk about this uh, just because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Sometimes uh, when uh, the service is over, and by the way, I also don't want kids hounding the people who, uh, who are making the bread after services. But um, sometimes the service has ended and somebody will give the kids some of the leftover bread and they'll eat it just as bread. We're not sitting here taking a mini Lord's Supper or anything. It's just, hey, it's bread. And so kids will eat because that's what kids do. Um, so... This is a judgment call. Uh, I can't point at a Bible passage about this, obviously. I would say this. Sometimes we have leftover bread. It's bread. It's not the show bread that's only lawful for the priest to eat. It's just bread. And uh, sometimes we're going to throw the bread away or we give it to somebody. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking our, our going to be trash. It's not trash because we're not feeding our kids trash. But, um, and then saying, you know, if you want that, you can have it. Uh, so... I think it's something when it's no longer to be, to be used for its intended purpose. I think it's within reason to give it away instead. And I would say the same thing. If it wasn't kids, if it was somebody in need or something like that, I think it would be the same principle. All right, last thing. Uh, Lord's Supper and live streaming. I just want to say the same that I've said a year and a half ago when I talked about this, but I think it needs to be re-impressed. And that is that when the elders first started uh, talking about live streaming, live streaming was never intended to be a substitute for what we're doing right now, being together. And while we acknowledge that it has had a tremendous uh, help to our group to be able to be able to see uh, what's going on here and to be a part of it in some way, uh, I just want to reemphasize that if we're able, we want everybody to be here. And we want those who are at home, if you're able to be here, because uh, as we've seen, that's part of how we worship in an appropriate way, but it's also a way we can encourage you and you can encourage us. That's the pattern. And so I want us to remember that and keep pressing toward that goal 
and say, you know what, this has been an exceptional time, but as we move out of that, to not forget uh, the rule in all of the exceptions. All right, well, I've taken a few minutes of uh, John's extra time, but I appreciate your attention, and uh, we'll be dismissed for our classes at this time.